And imagine yourself here at this amazing lodge where we're going to hear stories from some great fishermen teaching us how to be better at our ability to fish, but not just catching fish, but catching men. For since 2005, since I became pastor, um, I've decided every January it'd be really nice to just kind of take a break. When I was a youth pastor, we'd have snow camps, and snow camps were a great time to kind of shake off the dust of the past year and just get your heart ready for the new year and take some time to dwell on deep truths of God so we can be refreshed. We can see God in a new light again or just be revisit some old truths that we tend to forget in the busyness of life. So every January, we do a January series where we imagine ourselves going somewhere different. This year, we are at St. Pete's Lodge, and we are going to learn what it means to be a fisher of men. And it be, by being a fisher of men, Jesus said, after he catches us, he's going to send us out to go catch other men and women with the gospel. Well, today, our topic is about the fish. We're going to learn all about the fish that we need to catch. But I'm not going to talk about it. We have in our, in our congregation what I would call is the fish whisperer. He's the fishperer is what he is, the fishperer. He is, uh, I mean, he has fished all kind of fish. He is known to be just adventurous, catches the wildest, the biggest fish of all. And if you can welcome the fish whisperer himself, Jared the Hook Doty. Come on up. Chris needs to go to confession because he just lied. You said fishperer. That was nice. That was a good touch. Uh, if you know me, I know I wanted to deflect the credit back to you, though. If you know me, you know I like to combine words, and they're just really lame dad jokes, but I still think they're funny, so I keep making them. Uh, but if you know me at all, you know that what Chris said is not true in the least. I am not a good fisherman. I know people who are. Justin Vander Cody. I, don't shake your head, it's true. There are people up on this stage, Mike and, and Fred, people who love to fish and who are great at it. And I am not one of them, just very clearly, okay? I've probably caught 20, maybe 30 fish in my life, which might sound impressive until I tell you that 29 of them were bluegill, which are great, panfish, bluegill, and one of them was an accidental catch. I was trying to catch bluegill and I caught a perch which also tastes very nice. So I'm not a good fisherman. Here, here's proof that I'm not a good fisherman. This is a picture of me when I was eight years old. Look at, aw, everybody, aw. That is a bluegill, if you notice, right, in my hand. That's a nice-looking bluegill, but it's still a bluegill. And contrary to popular belief, my arms have not gotten any larger <laughs> than what you see in that picture. So that's Jared. Uh, let's fast-forward to the age of 19. This is Jared with a bluegill. Okay, that one is significantly less impressive. Maybe it just looks smaller because I'm so large. I bought that at a Goodwill. It's like, that's an Atari shirt way before my time, but I'm using it anyway. So that's me, 19 years old, in a, in a boat with my dad, apparently drinking Pepsi off by my leg there. Uh, but I'm not good at fishing. In fact, the only way I fish is with a bobber and a hook which you're like, that's fine, a bobber and a worm on the hook. Half the time, my worm falls off or gets stolen by the fish, and I'm like, ah, 
That's right, I got to set it. I forget every time. And the other times I fish, I think I've lost probably 15 hooks because I can never tie it on correctly. And so when the fish does grab it, I'm like, yeah, I rip it. And there's no hook. There's no fish. The hook is in the fish somewhere, you know. I'm not a good fisherman, and I know that about myself. When we talk about this series that we're doing, Gone Fishing, Jesus' command in Mark 1 to go and follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Maybe you feel like that when it comes to even the thought of evangelism, the thought of, of sharing the hope that you have, sharing what God has done in your life with other people who don't know. Maybe you feel that way, and if so, then this is absolutely a series for you. Uh, Jesus is here telling Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, who are vocational fishermen who do this for a living, that the object of the catch is changing for them. Where they used to catch fish, now he wants them to be people who go out and share the hope of the gospel of God, the hope of the kingdom of God with other people. Their vocation is shifting to catching men, people who are lost and in desperate need of rescue. Um, That brings us to our text today. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, please. And as you do that, I will pray. Uh, Lord, I, I need your help to do this passage today. I need your help not to fear people, not to want glory, and I need your help to communicate clearly. And so I pray that your word would go forth and that your spirit would work in our hearts and show us the truthfulness of it. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for being with us. Teach us now, we pray. Amen. Before we read the passage for today, uh, I need to start off with a question. If this is a scale, this is one side of the scale, this is the other side of the scale, where would you put, when I ask this question, I want, I want you to think and hold on to your, your gut reaction, okay, because that's very important for this. Where would you put human morality? Are we neutral? Are we basically good people? Are we basically bad people? Think about your natural response. On this side of the spectrum, you have people who believe that we are generally good people. Maybe there's a little bit of blemish in us. Maybe there's a a couple sins, some small things that need to get kind of blotted out. But by and large, we're, we're good people. I mean, look at all the good in the world. You, you work your way down the spectrum and you have people that are like, yeah, we're, we're mostly good, but there's, there's more bad. Maybe you're in somewhere in the middle where you say, that's kind of a 50-50. Depends on the day. Kind of a yin-yang kind of thing. Uh, it depends on which one wins out. If I, if I do more good, then I'm okay. But if I let that evil creep in, like I've had days like that too. Maybe you thought that. Maybe you thought farther on this side of the spectrum and you said, uh, it's not looking too good when you open up my heart. Um, there are moments, there's like a, a flame down there, it's flickering. There are moments where I'm good, uh, and there's good parts about me, but I also know that there's a lot of, a lot of sin, a lot of uh, fault, things that aren't perfect. Or maybe you're at this side of the spectrum, and you believe, and your gut reaction today was to say, I am totally depraved. My, my hope for today is, is that the Spirit of God would move you from any one of these positions to where the Bible lands on this topic. And so even before I read Romans 1 to all of us here, I just need a a preliminary statement just to say, this is going to be a heavy sermon. So if you're expecting to be 
entertained or feel really, really good about yourself today, I, I'll fail you if, if that comes across in any way. Does that make sense? This is a heavy passage. When you open up the box here, you're, you're not going to like what's inside of it. But there's a reason, and I'm going to get to that at the end of the message. So that is the state of this message. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me. I am going to read this very slowly and very deliberately because the picture that the Bible paints of humanity is not as shiny as we might want it to be, okay? The picture that the Bible paints is, is grim, and I, I don't want this to stay in the out there realm. Like, this applies to other people. We are a part of humanity, are we not? This is what our heart is like apart from the working of God. It is reality. Romans chapter 1, start in verse 18 with me. It says, Paul writes this to a bunch of believers who live in the city of Rome. He says that the wrath of God, already, that's the tone. <laughs> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of mankind, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Stuff it down. Ignore it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they knew these things about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They not only did these things, catch the wording, they were filled 
with all manner of unrighteousness, with evil, with covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. They are foolish, they are faithless, heartless, and they are ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval of those who practice them. This is the word of God. This is the state of the fish. And when we're talking about fish today, we're talking about humanity. We're talking about mankind, what the heart of each human being actually looks like. So today, I need us to to pry open our hearts a little bit, to open up the flesh, so to speak, and to take an honest look at what's really in there. Because I have a sneaking suspicion we might say we hold to total depravity, But somewhere along the line, there is a temptation of greater or lesser strength that says, I'm not that bad off, really. Frankly put, the fish is lost. When we sing in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, this is what we mean by lost. I was in a state of depravity. The fish is drowning, and the fish can't get out. And the fish, apart from being rescued, I'm going to venture to say it doesn't even want to get out of the waters of sin. I'm going to attempt to defend that later on in the message in case you think that I'm totally off and you're, you're writing this question down to bring it to the pastor panel later. Like, oh, that one. I'm ready. I'm going to attempt to show from Scripture that the fish doesn't even want to get out. What I'm going to do right now is take us through five, uh, hopefully short, If you know me, you're hoping that too. Five hopefully short uh, observations from this text, drawing out some specific words or phrases that help really paint the picture for the reality that it is. The first one is right in verse 18. At the end of verse 18, it says, God's wrath is being revealed against mankind because mankind is suppressing the truth. There are known things about God. He lists two of them. He says his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived and known from the creation of the world. People understand some simple things. The first one he gives is that God is eternally powerful. Take, for example, like a nice, imagine a nice summer evening. We're looking out to the west, and what do we see? You see this immaculate sunset with colors that are so radiant that we know that even the best artists, the best artists here on earth, can't even depict such hues. We look at that and we say, wow, whoever made this, whoever made all these things has got to be powerful. He's got to be glorious. He's got to be beautiful. That's the first thing that we know. We realize that God is big and that he is powerful. The second thing that Paul says is obvious to all humanity is that we know of his divine nature. This means we know that this God who creates is not like me. I can't even get my kids to consistently obey me, let alone create something from nothing. 
God created all of this, and we have to stand back and say, whoever did this is far greater than I am. I'm not like him. He, he's not like me. He's far, far greater. These two reasons, and the fact that Paul says that this is plain to them in verse 19, and that he says it is evident to them later on, these things lead him to say at the end of verse 20 that all humanity is without excuse for not knowing these things. It's a tough pill for some people to swallow. But it, it basically means that nobody will be able to get away with saying, sorry God, I didn't know you were there. At the judgment seat when we stand before God, nobody gets to play the ignorance card and say, well, there just wasn't enough proof. I, I, I couldn't believe because I didn't know. God is saying in this passage that that is absolutely not the case. Human beings are without excuse. We know these two things at least. He says more through creation. We know these things about God. But what does it say at the end of verse 18 that we do? We suppress the truth that we do know. We, we stuff it down. Imagine a, a suitcase you're trying to leave for a vacation. And you're, you're jumping on the thing, trying to get the zipper closed. You want to keep it in there. You want to keep it pushed down where it doesn't come flying out in your face. That's the idea behind suppression of the truth. All of us, at one time or another, maybe even now, are in a state where we are trying to intentionally ignore and play the ignorance card upon what can be known evidently and plainly about God in the universe. That's what suppression of the truth is. This, this thought leads me to have a statement. I have many friends from high school, very few of them I actually keep in touch with. I went to a public school. There are some friends who have followed Christ and put their faith in him, and there are other friends who haven't, and some who profess to be atheists, those who profess that they don't believe that God exists. And I, I firmly believe that this passage should lend all Christians to say, I don't believe you. Atheists say we don't believe in God. Christians say we, we don't believe in atheists. Because every human heart knows that he's real. We're just trying. We, we may not like the God of the Bible. We, we might think that things he does or says or commands he gives are outlandish and therefore I don't like him. Therefore I say illogically that he doesn't exist. But we know it's not true. We know it's not true. And this passage makes that evidently clear. The second thing that I need to bring out, first one is suppression of the truth. The second one is this. There has been a very foolish exchange on the part of humanity. This is a tragic reality, and it is the state of the fish. The fish is guilty of this. Because in verse 21, if you start reading with me, although they knew God, although we knew these things about God, there has been a failure to honor him. There has been a failure, furthermore, to give thanks to this God. And because of that, these people have become futile in their thinking. Futile is the word for pointless or useless. Basically, their thinking has been corrupted, and they're not thinking rightly about God any longer. Uh, he says that their foolish hearts have become darkened. So first of all, he's saying that their hearts are foolish for ignoring and stuffing this truth. And Psalm 14 says the same thing. It says, the fool says in his heart what? There is no God. Because the Bible presupposes that every human being knows better. Their foolish hearts are now, it, the ante is upped. They are now further darkened. Their already foolish hearts have become further darkened. The slippery slope has begun. 
And this is why. It says, because they exchanged, look with me at verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, Him as their supreme treasure and their portion, as Psalm 16 says. They have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for fakes, for images, for replicas, idols. He says specifically, they've made statues of men, of birds, of animals, of creeping things. And so I want to bring this to our attention because this is not, as I said, this is not an out there problem, right? This is the problem of our hearts. You've heard before that the heart is an idol factory. There's no end to its generation or creation of alternative things to worship. This is why. It's because our hearts are in this state. If you want to know if you've exchanged the glory of God for something in your life, you have to just simply answer this question. Not a hard question. What do you want? Generally speaking, in your life, what do you want? When a day, when today rolled around, what were you hoping to get today? What were you hoping to achieve? What does your heart yearn and long for? If you're anything like me, which I think you are, you'll be kind of ashamed to look at the list of things, the litany of things that is there, or that things that are there. They're really silly when you stop and, and think about it. I remember, didn't say this in first service, but I remember I had my first job when I was 12 working on a farm. I had my first paycheck, and I was convinced that the thing that was going to make me happy was a Game Boy Color and Pokemon Blue. Anybody with me? You guys, you know, yeah. That was way before you guys' time. Oh, man. That's interesting. Okay. I, I'm con- these things we're convinced at different times that they're going to actually satisfy our souls. And his whole point here is we have exchanged God as our all-sufficient, all-satisfying delight for created things. Think about that. Is that not the definition of foolishness? Knowing better and choosing to go to something created to give you eternal joy? It doesn't fit because it's not supposed to fit. When I ask this question, my heart comes up with many different things. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that we are to do all things with thankfulness to God in our hearts. Whether we eat or drink, we do all these to the glory of God. And we've heard that before, likely. But instead, this is what our hearts are like. Instead of glorifying God in all things and desiring to give him thanks and praise in all things, what we've instead done is we've chosen to worship created things and we are guilty of this great exchange in our hearts. Essentially, we have given our affections over to lesser things. We obsess about ourselves, people's opinions about us. We worry about our reputation. We worry about our appearance. We worry about our our accomplishments. We want those things to satisfy us. And they don't because they can't. This is a worship problem. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the worship pastor. This really is a worship problem. On the throne of our hearts, instead of having God having the ultimate position of our affections in our hearts, we've instead chosen to give that to lesser things. We've put other things upon that throne. And therefore, all humanity who has done this is guilty and without excuse, is what Romans 1 says. If this isn't a bleak enough picture for you. It always gets a little darker before it gets lighter. Deep breath. You guys will make it through this. The third thing I need to bring out is 
a terrifying phrase that's found in verse 24, 26, and 28. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. And verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, giving him thanks and praise and glory, God gave them up. This is a terrifying reality for humanity. God's restraining grace in the world is pulled back, and essentially he gives the fish what it wants. He gives humanity what it wants. I want you to imagine for a second, we've all seen dumb dogs, right? I love dogs, but you know what I mean. You've seen a dog that just doesn't seem to have any brains before, right? You guys are like, you're talking about my dog. No, maybe. Imagine this dog, he's on a leash. His owner is getting, leaving the house, getting ready to take this dog for a walk. And now imagine the dog gets sight of a semi-truck going by. And this dog is dumb, okay? This dog has no desire except to race and to tag the semi-truck. Imagine that. You probably have fought a dog before. Now imagine a good owner who loves his dog holding onto that leash and leaning back and restraining this 80, 100-pound dog like this, for a long time as this car continue, or as the semi continues to go down the road. Now imagine, for a brief second, the reality. Imagine that this dog, sick of being restrained by this good owner, looks back at the owner and realizes, the only way I can go get what I want right now is if I get him out of the way. So the dog looks backward, bites the hand of the owner, and starts attacking the owner. And so what would an owner of this dog do? Let go of the leash. When it says that God has given humanity up three different times to three different things, this is the picture that we should have in our mind. God has said, you are so literally hell-bent on going after that, and you're attacking me and refuse to heed my good commands for you? Okay. Fine. If that's what you want, and listen to how that plays out. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, the desires of their hearts. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to these dishonorable sexual passions. We can just take a brief glimpse of our culture today to see where this has led us. And God says very clearly at the end of verse 27 that they are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Corrupted sinful desires come from this, and God says, fine, that's what you want. You're going to get everything that goes with it. In verse 28, it says that they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and so he gave them over to a debased mind. The point of that is they're not even thinking correct thoughts about God anymore. They're so uh, debased in their mind, it's so reduced in its quality, that now they do things naturally that should be obvious to us all that ought not to be done. That's the picture here of Romans 1. This is a bad, bad condition that we find ourselves in. You see how we're not merely mostly good with a few blemishes? You see how that doesn't work with reality? And we know that to be true. The fish enters into what I'll, what I'll call the current. So there's a metaphor for us to hold on to. The fish enters willingly into this current of God giving them up. And this current is so strong that the fish can't get out of it. In fact, I'm going to venture even farther to say that I don't think the fish 
on its own, apart from the work of God, even wants to get out of this current. That might sound harsh, but I plan to show you with this next point why I think that's true, why I think the fish wants to stay in this polluted, murky sin water. Look at verse 30 with me, and let these words sink in for a second. He says that we're gossips, which we typically don't think is a big deal, but is to God. We're slanderers. And then it says three words, which is the reality, whether we want to believe it or not, about ourselves. Haters of God. That sounds very grim, very bleak. And unless you think that this is maybe an isolated time where Paul wrote this and maybe he meant something else, I have to tell you that Jesus actually says the same exact thing. Flip with me to John chapter 3 for a moment to continue to open up this box. To me, there's no clearer picture of our depravity in the New Testament than the words hater of God and how they align with this passage. John chapter 3. Now, many of us know John 3.16, which I hope you do, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. For God loved the world so. He loved it in this manner that he, he what? Gave of his only son so that we could be forgiven, that we could be redeemed, that we could be brought near to him. And the reason why that is necessary, why it was necessary that God had to come down, was because of verse 19. Verse 19 and 20 say this, and this is the judgment. This is why a light had to come into the world. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So maybe you're saying, Jared, that doesn't say that they hated the light, that they hated God here. It just says that they loved darkness because their works were evil. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things, which we've already established is all of us, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This means that we're not merely indifferent to God, that our hearts are like, they just kind of ignore him, like maybe, yeah, we know he's there and it's okay. This doesn't mean that uh, humanity is apathetic to the things of God. This means that humanity's natural, the natural state of each one of our hearts is so bent and inclined away from God that we are no longer lovers of the light. We are haters of the light and we have turned and shifted to become lovers of darkness. It doesn't get much more grim than this, but he then further explains and says, but they hate the light so much that they won't even come to it. They have such a hatred for the light who has come into the world that they refuse to come to it. Why? This is hugely important. Because they're afraid that their works will actually be exposed. Think of cockroaches in a kitchen, right? The light is off. It's nighttime. They're scurrying around. They're finding remains of food somewhere. They're reveling in the darkness. They're being cockroaches. What happens when the light gets flipped on? They all hide. They scurry. Why? This is a metaphor for us. 
when the light has come into the world, we realize that that, sh- that light is going to shine so brightly upon my darkness that I have no other alternative but to run the other way. We flee the darkness. We flee to the darkness from the light. This happened in the garden with Adam and Eve as well. As soon as they were deceived by the enemy and they took of the forbidden fruit, they knew what? They knew the knowledge of good and evil. And they knew all of a sudden where they used to walk with God in the cool of the day and there was this perfect communion, this perfect fellowship, everything was as it ought to be. Now, for the first time in all of humanity, things were not as they ought to be. We, we feel that, don't we? Let's not just talk about it. Like We feel that things aren't the way they should be, right? Do you have everything you, you think we ought to have? Do we have perfect health? No, people shouldn't get cancer. People shouldn't get sick. People shouldn't make terrible, destructive decisions in their life. This isn't the way it ought to be. We know that, don't we? In, innately, we believe that to be true. And so Adam and Eve, what do they do? They hide from his presence. And this is the thought I believe we can't bear to believe about ourselves. We don't want to acknowledge that we are really this bad off. That we are really this wicked. And I think the reason for this is actually quite simple. Because to acknowledge this means that I am indeed helpless to save myself. I've got nothing to contribute. This means, because I'm helpless and I don't want this, that I would rather continue in my sin and plummet toward my death than admit that I need a rescuer. This was the state of each and every one of our hearts before Christ has gotten a hold of us and made us new and made us alive with him. Amen? It's not a pretty picture, but it's true. This is God's word. The fish, I'm daring to say, is not really wanting rescue because he loves his sin and because he hates the fishermen. Verse 32 just wraps up. This is the fifth short thing. Wickedness just breeds more wickedness. Not only are people this bad off, but they practice these things, although they know better, and they don't just do them themselves, but they give approval. They give the swat on the back to everybody else who continues in these things. Are you depressed yet? Trust me, it's about to get better. It really is. Last thing before it does, though. I have to make this part clear. Uh, I, I wisely listen to Pastor Chris's advice because he knows far more about preaching than I would ever know. But he says you need to envision what the... Um, what the objections to the text are going to be. So that way you can actually address those in a sermon. That way people's questions aren't left unanswered. So I tried to think, what is the question, the disagreement that people might have about this passage? And I think it's this. What about all the good in the world? Are you guys thinking that? I I was thinking that as I read Romans 1. What about the good that's in the world? Are we really truly this bad? There's kindness in the world. There are people who give of themselves for other people. There are young mothers who oftentimes even quit their jobs to take care of their little child, changing diapers, feeding, doing whatever they can for another. That's good, right? There are men and women who volunteer to lay down their life in the service of our country to protect all of us from the wickedness that's in the world. That's good, isn't it? 
Absolutely. That's good. You guys should be saying, yes, Jared, this is good. Those are good things. I feel like this is a trick. I don't know what to say. It is a good thing when Hurricane Harvey happens and Christians and non-Christians alike gathered in various institutions, organizations, and came and relieved the suffering in the world. That's a good thing, right? These are all good things. So how can the Bible say that humanity is this bad off? There doesn't seem to be a category for the good that's there. I need you to imagine an analogy with me, and I hope this makes sense. Imagine a father and a 16-year-old son. Imagine that the 16-year-old son comes up to his dad and says, Dad, I want to know, can I borrow the car tonight? I want to go with my friends and go to the basketball game. Right, basketball season, that's good to do. And the father, who's a good father, says, sure, you can borrow the car. I just have one condition, just one small condition, and then you can take the car. He says, I want you to wash the car because it's getting pretty dirty, and the inside of it also needs to be cleaned up, vacuumed a little bit. There's some pop cans. There's dust on the dash. It's just not looking very good. If you do that, absolutely. Take the car. Go have a good time. Be back by 11. Now I'm going to add a detail to the story, which I think Romans 1 verse 30 means when it says haters of God, and what I think John 3 says when Jesus says that we hated the light. Now imagine this reality, that the son, who is 16 years old, asking for the car, actually hates his father. Not kind of, like, uh, he's just my dad. No, actually hates his father. Doesn't want anything to do with him. He just has to be in his household. And so the son starts tapping his foot, kind of clenches up his fists. You see his jaw tighten. My dad always has, like, temples that start doing this with his pulse, you know. This is happening, and the son looks at his dad square in the eye and says, fine. Parents, would that be a good move? The son goes outside, grabs a bucket, heads out. The father looks out the window, and he sees that his son is washing the car. The son grabs a sponge, and you see him, and he looks not like this. He's, he's washing the car. He takes it, throws it in the water, throws it at the car. He opens up the door. He takes all the pop cans, all the garbage, and chucks it out onto the sidewalk. He's vacuuming the car. He's cleaning the car. Does the father, this is the most important question. First question is this. Is the car getting clean? Yeah. Most important question. Is the father pleased with the heart of his son in cleaning the car? I think this is the most helpful analogy for us to understand what the goodness in the world is like. The goodness is being done, and sometimes it's even being done nicer than that, than that boy with the car. Sometimes it's done pretty nice. But if the car is getting washed, hear me on this, if the car is getting washed and the son has no love for his father, nothing but hatred in his heart for his father, is the father pleased in the manner in which the car is getting washed? No. There is absolutely, without a doubt, goodness in the world. But when we say we are justified by grace through faith, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, what we're saying is that no amount of washing the car is going to restore the relationship with that rebellious son and his kind father. Nothing. No amount of good thing he could do would ever be able to mend and repair that relationship. The one thing that does mend and repair the relationship is what? 
Dad, I'm sorry. I, I treated you terribly. That's repentance. That's a turning from what we used to be. And all of that is of God. As I'm trying to make clear, it's not of us. This leaves us absolutely zero room to boast. Absolutely zero room to say, I chose God. You hear, you hear people say that. I was seeking and I found him. No, the only reason you might have been seeking is because his Holy Spirit moved in you first. That's it. There is nothing innately of us that loves the Father. Nothing. We all know this to be true. I think despite all of our pushback in the depths of our hearts, we know what we're really like. I know what I'm really like. I, my wife can attest to these things. <laughs> I, I'm selfish. I'm, this is one of the weirdest paradoxes. I'm, I'm a person who wants attaboys, as we often do, Glory is appealing. To be great at something and to be noticed for it, that's appealing. And so God has seen fit to put me in front of people for a profession. Yay! I'm confronted with my sin every single Sunday morning when I pick up a guitar and come to lead people in worship. You see how that's a worship problem? I want people to worship me. That's, that's the temptation that's in our hearts. And that doesn't simply go away. And we're not being honest if we say it's not there. We know what we're like you know what you're like when you're alone. You know what your heart really, truly wants. And apart from any saving grace of God, that's what it's going to continue to pursue. But now, what you've all been waiting for, the good news. When I was growing up, I did not appreciate the good news of the gospel because nobody dared to tell me the bad news. Does that make sense? I didn't know how bad off I really was, and so I didn't appreciate or understand even what it was that Jesus had done for me. I, I believed, grew up going to church, I believed Jesus existed, that he died on a cross for my sins. I could rattle those things off just like we all can in this room. But I didn't realize what he really saved me from. It wasn't until I was, this is my personal story, I'll be brief, it wasn't until I was 14 years old, going into my freshman year of high school, late July, at a youth group camp. It was a Wednesday night campfire talk. It was in Wilderness State Park near, Na near Mackinac City. And that was the first time I had ever heard somebody depict this. I remember his name is Bill. Bill Knapp is his name. He was one of our youth leaders. He used to play basketball at Cornerstone, so if any of you went there and, and for some reason know him. Uh, he was the one who preached a gospel message that night and where my life was transformed because I looked at this. And as he was preaching, as he was sharing God's word, I looked at how ugly this was. And you ever have that feeling where it's like whoever is declaring or preaching God's word, you feel like nobody else is really in the room and this applies solely to me? You ever have that experience? I remember just feeling, I, I felt like I was standing up there completely exposed before God, and I was terrified. I remember seeing, that's what it's like, and finally, I, I, I agree. That's exactly what it's like. That's what my heart is like. I've been pursuing this. I've been living in this. I feel nothing but disgust and shame and guilt over all my sin. And then finally, the verse that basically set me free. If you know the Romans road, you know this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. 
changes everything. It changes it from being, I was pretty good and so God saved me. No, while I was like that, my God is so good that he would look upon me with pity and that he would say, you've gotten yourself into this and I'm not going to leave you there. So God came down and rescued me and set me free and I embraced the forgiveness that God has to offer and I was united with, I know all these theological words now that I didn't know then. I know that I'm justified that one day I will be glorified as we sang in that second song. Oh, glorious day. I realize all this change that has happened in me. The biggest change is this. The dead man became alive. The one who hated God and was going this way, the Holy Spirit did a 180 in my heart. And now I saw God as good and beautiful and worthy of my worship. Before that, he was an obstacle to my glory. And now, I saw it for the first time. I saw the depths of the love of God. That he, is un, that he does not leave sinners in this state, but he sent his son to rescue just this type of person. You guys know Jesus' words. I came for the what? The sick, not the healthy. I came to call unrighteous people, people that look like this, to me. Not people who are pretty good and pretty, pretty sure of themselves. That's pretending. That's suppression of the truth. That's worshiping a lie, not the truth. When you embrace the truth, you finally see God and his love for as glorious and astounding as it is. Amen? We need to understand the bad news so that we can appreciate the good news of the gospel. Christ came in the world to save sinners, Paul says, and I'm the worst. When we all believe that, that we're really that bad off, this is what happens. When you believe you need a little bit of saving, because you have a little bit of sin, therefore you need a little bitty savior. One that can be an assistance to you when you need it or when you oops. When you have an awareness and a knowledge of the depths of the depravity of your own heart and you then realize how great a savior you need to have to forgive you for all of this sin, your praise goes from being this tiny because you feel entitled to salvation to enormous because you can't believe that God would rescue someone like you. I can't believe that God would save me. I didn't deserve a thing. Kathy actually told me earlier this week, she heard Mark Lowry at one point said, anything above hell is good. Like, because we don't deserve a single thing. But do you see how kind God is to us? It's unbelievable how much he loved us, that he would give of himself, that he would die for us to take our place, even though we were living in blatant rebellion against his name. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we, people like this, should be called sons and daughters of God. Wow. 